Would you join me in prayer at this time? Would you speak, O Lord, to us? Speak clearly, speak loudly, speak powerfully, speak convincingly, speak unto us, your church, through and by your word, so that we may sojourn and walk faithfully as your people and your bride. Speak to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in two weeks, uh, ELM, we will be ordaining elders and officially organizing as a church. Uh, it's a new beginning for us as a congregation. And, you know, much like giving birth to a child, um, there are feelings of joy uh, mixed with fear, feelings of excitement uh, mixed with worry. Uh, when a couple discovers that um, they are soon to be parents, uh, they start to research and read books on parenting. For example, I think um, when we had our first child, um, one, one of the most popular books I think that was recommended to us um, was, was this book, uh, What to Expect the First Year. You know, new parents, um, they read and they study. And they read and they study because it helps them to prepare and set expectations for being a parent. Now, in a very similar way, um, we're looking forward to this day when we become a church. And so what I like to do is I like to prepare and set expectations by studying Acts. See, Acts is a book that tells the story, the history of the church, its beginnings, its development, its failures, and its calling. So, uh, beginning today, as we look forward uh, to two weeks, and moving forward from that point on, well into 2021, Acts will be our church's manual. It'll help us set a vision It'll give us proper expectations, and it'll also help us deal with disappointments and hardships. And most importantly, Acts will help us love Jesus and his bride, the church, even more. You know, when um, couples read books on parenting, uh, they read it not just to pick up skills and to discover know-hows, right? Um, Couples, they read books uh, on parenting because they want to learn how to better love their child. And Acts, I believe, should help us to love the church more, uh, the church which Jesus purchased with his own blood. Now, we just read the opening verses of this book, and I want to make just three observations uh, on the church's beginnings as we find in Acts chapter 1. So three observations. And, and the first observation I'd like to make is this. Uh, the church is clueless. And the church is clueless. Uh, look with me in verses 6 to 7. This is, what it, this is what it says. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
Now, you have to remember, all of the, the, this conversation, all of this is happening after Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay. Also, this is happening after Jesus, in his resurrected body, spent 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And still, when you listen to the question that the disciples are asking, they just don't get it. They're asking the wrong question. They're making all the wrong assumptions. And everything that Jesus taught them seemed to just have gone past them. Now, some of you parents who've been helping your children with virtual school at home, you probably have experienced something similar to this, right? Where you teach your child something, uh, you repeat it over and over. Maybe it's a math concept or social studies. And you repeat yourself and you think that, okay, I think they've gotten, they've gotten it. They've, they've understood it. But when you listen to their questions, you realize, oh my goodness, they missed it. They don't understand. Now, now to be fair to our children, um, we should admit that most of the time it's, it's probably us. Right? We're not clear enough and we're not good at explaining things to little children. But this is Jesus. Jesus is a masterful teacher. Jesus, and he isn't teaching some foreign idea. He's teaching about his own kingdom. He's teaching about his own father. I mean, how could Jesus be any more clearer than he already is? But we find that the disciples, even after Jesus' resurrection, even after he spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom, they just don't get it. You know, throughout the book of Acts, we will find that this is a very common occurrence. The apostles and the church, even after Jesus' resurrection, we find that the church is often confused, often mistaken. It's either because of their lack of understanding or just their rigidity. And so here's the point that we find in the opening pages of Acts. From the very beginning, the church does not have it all put together. The church doesn't have all the right answers. The church isn't buttoned up. The church never was and never will be a polished organization with a clear mission and even clearer strategy. Instead, what we'll find throughout Acts The church often asks the wrong questions. It has the wrong answers. And the church, more often than not, seems to be directionless. Now, I know some people might be put off by this. But I suspect for others, people who've been a part of the church for quite some time, I think think you'll find this to be very um, inspiring. You know, when I read Acts and when I see Paul's stubbornness, uh, Peter's obtuseness, and the church's rudderlessness, and when I see these things, and despite all of that, the church carrying out God's plan, it's quite inspiring. It's inspiring because 
when I see this, when I realize this, when I admit this and confess this, I can sincerely and honestly say, you know what, all glory belongs to Christ. So the first point, or the first observation I'd like to make is that the church is clueless. The church doesn't get it. And oftentimes throughout Acts, it'll, it'll miss the point entirely. But the second observation is this. Uh, this clueless church is led by the Spirit of Christ. So if you look at verse 4, Jesus, he reminds his disciples again of the promise of the Holy Spirit. He writes this, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, what we find here, that we find here that Jesus doesn't leave the church to figure things out on their own. Instead, Jesus, knowing that the church is ill-equipped, unprepared, inadequate in almost every way, he sends his own spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who will guide and lead the church. Again, this is another common theme throughout Acts. We find that when the church uh, is rudderless, we find that when the leaders are clueless, we find that when the church doesn't know really what to do, the Holy Spirit leads the church. We find that the Holy Spirit leads the church sometimes by illuminating the truth. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads the church by speaking on behalf of the disciples. Sometimes the Spirit leads the church by imparting wisdom. Sometimes the Spirit leads the church by closing doors. Sometimes it opens doors. Sometimes it cuts people to the heart that they would repent. And sometimes the Spirit cuts people to the heart that they will become hardened. Either way, we see throughout the book of Acts, time and time again, the Holy Spirit acting in a variety of ways to lead the church. So here is the truth that we find not just in Acts 1, not just in Acts 1 to 28, but all throughout the age of the church. We find that the church does not move a single step without the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, so if I could sum up the DNA of the church, what is the DNA of the church? What are the strands that make up um, its its biological makeup, right? What's the DNA of the church? And and I'm not talking about characteristics or core core values or missions or visions. What's the DNA of the church? Well, the DNA of our church and all churches is that the church is biblically grounded, gospel-centered, and spirit-led. Now, I think the first two we're familiar with, but the third, being led by the Spirit, this is one that I think we often forget. The church, as the body of Christ, is led by the Spirit of Christ. 
you know, the clueless church being led by the Spirit of Christ, I think there are, um, I think, three ways to understand this. Or let me break this down into just three parts. Okay, The church being led by the Spirit is a comfort, um, it's a challenge, and it's a call. So first, I think, I think the Spirit leading the church is comforting. It's comforting because even though we don't have all the answers as a church, Scripture promises that the Holy Spirit will lead us. We know well that you don't have to have all the directions from going from point A to point B to not be lost. You don't have to have all the directions. You just need a good guide. If you have a good guide, you're never lost. You could have no idea where you're at, but if you have someone leading you, you're not lost. And that's the promise of the Spirit. It's comforting. The second thing, though, I think this is a challenge. Because that means that we as a church, we need to follow and be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that as a Reformed Presbyterian church, whenever the topic of the Spirit's leading comes up, we're really not sure what to make of it. And it does make us a bit nervous. The Spirit's leading. What does that mean? Well, we find throughout Acts that the Spirit's leading is often made manifest when the scriptures are expounded and when people are in prayer. Again, we find in Acts that the Spirit's leading is often revealed, it's made manifest when the scriptures are expounded and when people are in prayer. So, the challenge is this. If we want to be a church led not by subjective taste, not by preference. If we want to be a church led not by selfish ambition or the zeitgeist of the world, if we want to be a church that's truly led by the Holy Spirit, we have to constantly be in the Word and in prayer. You see, throughout Acts we'll find that missions and mercy they are a result of the church being led by the Spirit as it was deep in the Word and prayer. Fellowship and community, these things are byproducts of the church submitting to the Spirit's will as discovered in the Word and prayer. And the challenge is this, if we want to be a church that's led by the Spirit, we must constantly be in the Word and in prayer. So it's comforting, it's a challenge, and finally being led by the Spirit, it's a calling. It's a calling. Being led by the Spirit means that we are called to go forth in the Spirit's power to be witnesses throughout the world. This is what it says in verse 8. It reads like this, Jesus speaking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, in in the coming weeks, we'll talk more about the church being a witness to the world. But today, I just want to talk about the church receiving power. The church has a calling. And this calling is one that's coupled with the receiving of the Holy Spirit and its power. Again, I know that this language of power isn't used much in the church today. Power. I mean, it either sounds childish or it sounds boastful. The church has power. We've got the power. I mean, it, it sounds like a very cheesy... A political slogan, right? By, by maybe like Jack Black, right? We've got the power, right? It sounds a bit like, I don't know, it's either childish or boastful. And I think to avoid any such notions, the church, what we've done is we've gone in the opposite direction. We've become hyper-modest, needlessly self-effacing, overly unassuming. And as a result, the church, we've denied the power that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Church, denying this power isn't modest, isn't being humble. When we deny this power, it's actually skirting responsibility. It's denying God's calling. Remember, the church, the church, we are married to Christ. You know, if your spouse is powerful, if he has authority, you, by virtue of being his spouse, you have the same power and authority. The first lady, or, you know, the first lady of the President of the United States, she has power. It's derived from her husband, but she has power. And to deny it would be irresponsible. See, the church, having received the Holy Spirit, has its power. Has its power to go forth and be witnesses in the world. And this is something that we shouldn't deny This is something that we shouldn't reject. This is something that we shouldn't reject out of false humility. But this is something that we have to own up to. And this is a calling that the church has. To go forth in the power of the Spirit. So the second observation that we find about the church is that the clueless church is led by the Spirit of Christ. And this, friends, is a comfort, it's a challenge, it's a calling. But the third and last observation I want to make from today's passage is this. We find here in today's passage that the clueless church that's led by the Spirit of Christ is temporary. If you look with me, uh, starting in verse 10, this is what the angels say. After Jesus ascended, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
Um, and behold, out of heaven, two angels stood with them um, in white robes. And while they were gazing in to heaven, these, these um, angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You know, these verses reminds us that this present state, the church without its groom, the church with all of its sin and shame, the church with its confusion, the clueless church, this is not the end. Just this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the angels remind the disciples, it tells the church that Jesus will return in the same way he ascended. He will return in the flesh. He will return in the same glory, in the same majesty, in the same love. Jesus will return to his bride, the church. So, the church as we see it now, the church in its present state, in this current state, this is not the end game, folks. The church as it stands now, this is not the final product. Scripture promises us that as we are being led by the Spirit in this present time, that Christ one day will return to his bride. And that, that is the end. But praise God for that. Church, we are living in a very special period at this time. We're living in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And our call in between this time is to be a faithful bride, a pure virgin, without spot, wrinkle, and blemish. We are called to be a church that's eagerly waiting for His return. We are called to be a church to wait for His return and be faithful to our call in this present day and age. So, for those who are somewhat skeptical of the church, I promise you, What you see now in the church, this is not the finished product. For those of you who are jaded and critical of the sins of the church, please do not lose hope. The church in shame will one day become the church in glory. When our glorious groom returns so just three observations as we begin this long journey about the history the beginnings the story of the church is that the church is often clueless but this clueless church is led by the spirit of God and finally the clueless church led by the spirit of God 
This is only temporary. You know, as I, as I read Acts and, you know, go through this story of the church, the disciples, the different arcs that it goes through, and the new revelations that it faces, um, it reminds me a lot of uh, the Toy Story character, um, Buzz, Lightyear, Buzz Lightyear. You know, if you remember in the first Toy Story you know, Buzz Lightyear, he, he appears onto the scene, and he's someone who just doesn't get it. He's asking all the wrong questions. He has all the wrong assumptions. He has this irrational confidence about himself. And, you know, Woody, throughout you know the film, the beginning of the film, he's explaining to him, he's like, you are a toy. You're just a toy. But it's not registering. Buzz Lightyear thinks he's much more than that. Now there comes a point in the the story where Buzz Lightyear, he realizes who he is. That he's just a toy. That he's not this space galactic ranger that he thought he was. And when he realizes that, he becomes deflated, depressed, disappointed. And he just gives up. He has this irrational confidence. And then when he realizes he's not all that he's meant to be or that he thought he was, he becomes deflated and depressed. But something wakes him up. Something wakes him up out of that depression. It's when he's reminded of his master, Andy. Andy's affection for him and his calling Onto his master. When he realizes, yes, I'm a toy, but I'm a toy who is receiving this incredible affection from my master. When he's reminded of his calling to be faithful unto his master, to live and exist for his master's joy, Buzz Lightyear, he wakes up from his depression and he goes out. In the freedom of his calling to live and to do all that he was called to be. You know, sometimes when I think about the church, I, I see these arcs. You know, the church, we ought not to have this irrational confidence about ourselves where we defy orders, where we think, you know, we have it all figured out, where we think, you know what, this is the one place where we, we have this. This irrational confidence. No. We are not to be like the disciples. Assuming all the wrong things. Asking all the wrong questions. Thinking all the wrong things about ourselves. But we also not to be, ought not to be deflated. Depressed. Thinking, you know what? We're just a church. I mean the church. What really is the church? What kind of power does the church have? I mean, the church is scorned in the world today. What a, what a shameful organization. No, we ought not to be deflated and depressed as we think upon the church. But as we consider our master's affection for us, as we think upon all that Christ has done for us, our groom, 
and redeeming us and forgiving us and washing us and cleansing us and in preparing us. That ought to wake us up so that we can go forth in the freedom of our calling to live and exist for our Master's joy. And so as we consider these things this morning, would you once again be inspired as you think upon the church? Would you once again look upon the church with the same lens, with the same eyes that Christ himself has for the church? Would you realize once again the affection that Jesus has for the church, the precious church, which he shed his precious blood for? Please join me in prayer at this time. Before we close, if I can ask um, you, the church, to just spend a few minutes in prayer. Would you pray at this time that we would be a congregation, that we would be a people, that we would be a church that's led by the Holy Spirit? Please don't pray that the leaders would have all the answers. Please don't pray that the church would be this polished group, all buttoned up. But would you pray that amidst all the chaos, the confusion, the sin, the shame, the muddiness and the dirtiness, that we would be a church that's led by the Holy Spirit. Despite our stubbornness, despite our rigidity, despite our confusion, despite not having all the right answers, that the Spirit of Christ would lead this body. At the same time, would you pray, if you are someone who is jaded, if you are someone who, who is critical, if you're someone who's skeptical, if you look upon the history of church and you see the scandal and the abuse and you think, what good is the church? Would you once again pray that you can see the affection that Christ has for his church and that that would free us, that that calling would give us freedom to go forth, to block all the noise and to live for our master's joy. Would you please at this time just spend a few minutes in prayer. Let's pray.